Welcome to the show. I'm Greg McEwen, and I'm your host for the What's Essential podcast. There are lots of shows on how to improve, on how to become successful, but there is only one on what to do once you are. This is essential because success can be a catalyst for failure, especially if it leads to the undisciplined pursuit of more. This show is about how to become successful at success. It's for high performers who are on the edge of exhaustion, solving problems completely before they even arise. It's about turning tedious tasks into joyful rituals. It's about simplifying your processes and making your most essential activities the easiest ones. So if you're a driven, hardworking, productive person who is running out of space but still wants to make a higher contribution effortlessly, the What's Essential podcast is designed especially for you. So let's begin. My guest today is Clay Drinko. He's an educator and author of Play Your Way to Sane and also a contributor to Life Hack Psychology Today, where he writes about the intersection between improv, science, and also the everyday in the blog, Play Your Way to Sane. He's a teacher. He's a trainer. He's the founder of English arts and drama programs all over the greater New York area, including for the New York City Department of Education. He's earned his PhD in drama and theater studies from Tufts University, two master's degrees in performance studies and adolescent urban education from LIU and NYU. He's originally from the Midwest, but now resides in Hudson Valley, which is a couple of hours north of New York with his husband, Harris, and their daughter, Ella. You can find Clay at playyourwaysane.com on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at playyourwaysane. And on LinkedIn at Clay Drinko, that's C-L-A-Y-D-R-I-N-K-O, Clay Drinko, welcome to the What's Essential podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here because there's, I think, really interesting parallels between both of our works and I love your books. And so thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And let's just get to the subject of play at hand because... It was one of my findings in my research originally for essentialism that non-essentialists tended to think that play was trivial, uh, that play was an unproductive waste of time, whereas essentialists held the assumption that play was essential in and of itself, that they used play to spark exploration and innovation and there's so much data to support this. I'm thinking now of Stuart Brown, founder of the National Institute for Play, who studied what he calls play histories of some 6,000 people and concluded that play has the power to significantly improve everything from personal health to relationships to education to an organization's ability to innovate. Play, he puts it this way, leads to brain plasticity, adaptability, and creativity. Or more succinctly, nothing fires up the brain like play. Your thoughts? I fully agree. And I love his work. I love his book, Play. I have come to this realization, though, through my experience as an actor and as an improviser and then as an improv researcher. 
I sort of stumbled onto improv, not really knowing what it was. And, you know, I was in good company because there's a lot of people who, you know, don't really know what it, what it is. And uh, once I really got the rules of improv and I started really meshing with my team, I had this experience on stage and I, I write about this where I no longer remembered what was happening while I was performing. I was so in the moment. I was so in, in a flow state. And then looking back on the tapes of those performances, I knew I was watching the best version of myself. And so for me, I think about play always in terms of improv. And I love that improv has these ready-made, prepackaged principles, right? These rules of the road um, that can help me when I'm on the stage to really focus on who I'm with and what's going on and to tap into that childlike sense of curiosity and wonder. And I love that I can take all these principles into my everyday life and, and bring that into my everyday life too. Because I'm, as I write in the book, I'm really guilty of being not playful and an overthinker and a worrier um, and just too grown up in my everyday life. And so, you know, taking what I've learned about improv and adapting it to my everyday life has been just an absolute game changer for me and I hope for other people. And, but you've gone beyond that. I mean, you're saying most people aren't that familiar with improv. And certainly I would say even of those that are, most people haven't actually experienced it. They haven't been in a theatrical troupe somewhere. They haven't uh, gone for, you know, classes in it. You've not only had classes in it. I mean, this is your, I mean, this is a pretty rare species. <laughs> <laughs> Someone who has actually had, you know, done formal education in, in almost entirely informal craft. Yes. <laughs> How many of you are there out in the wild? There are not a ton of us. I mean, it's it's lucky now that there are a lot of people who are doing what's called applied improvisation. So there are thousands of facilitators who are using improv to do all sorts of things, right? To help doctors, to help scientists communicate better, um, to help businesses to be more creative and and be more flexible. So there's a lot of people in the field now, but I definitely seem to have carved out a sort of lonely lane for myself where I um, have all these degrees and did my dissertation, <laughs> you know, did my dissertation on improv comedy, which at the time there just wasn't very much research at all on it. I think I finished my dissertation in 2012 and the dissertation was really answering the question, what is happening to our minds when we're having that experience that I had on stage when I didn't remember anything, but it was awesome. And I was really in the zone. And so at the time, there was mainly just research on um, musical improv. And so I really cobbled together this theory about what's happening in improv comedy that's special. And I traveled to Chicago to research. I took a Keith Johnstone workshop in Berlin. I, you know, I just really dedicated over a year of my life to really digging deep and interviewing some of the heaviest hitters in improv and I boiled it down to focus. So when you're improvising with, with other people, you have to pay such close attention to every single detail because if you don't, you're going to miss something and it's going to mess up the scene. And so this hyper focus 
which means you're really, really listening. You're really, really watching everything they do. That allows the sort of inner critic to shut off because you can't do two things at once. Your, your conscious mind cannot be thinking about, oh no, do I look stupid? Uh-oh, what should I say next? It can't do that and also um, pay very close attention to what your scene partners are doing. And so for me, that was my takeaway with that, with my dissertation, which later became the academic book. Um, but since then, I think the shift in focus is really important, but improv has all these other principles going on. And I, that's why I divided my book into 12 different lessons. I think the focus idea is really important. And I try to practice it every day to get out of my head and to be more present and in the moment. But I think it's also important to work on my listening, to take chances, to not let mistakes get me down. That makes sense to me and is really interesting. My wife, Anna, was uh, a music dance theater major. And so our first year of marriage was she was the understudy for Belle in the national tour of Beauty and the Beast. Oh, wow. And so, I mean, I was just in awe of the whole process of the whole theatrical world of everybody in the cast, but also the crew, the, uh, the, the directors, the producers. I was the bottom of the totem pole. <laughs> like I was below literally everyone, but I just was, I, I'm sure I was the happiest person uh, that there because I thought it was all so marvelous and magical, but I was selling plush beasts and roses, you know, <laughs> into mission. Uh, but one of the things that she's taught me uh, about acting is the term yabba yabba, right? Which is just all the noise in your head that wants to watch you act and critique you acting instead of just being. It's that yabba yabba, that, uh, that sort of really lack of focus, or particularly, I think you're right in saying listening, this lack of listening and presence that leads people to overact uh, to try too hard instead of just to be, uh, to to be in the moment, and so I think that is a it's a curious element of what you're saying. You have to be fully present. For people listening to this, you know, this is all very well. This may even be really interesting, but there's still probably quite a big gap between what we're talking about and anything in their in their life right now, you're saying there's a whole series of facilitators out there who are applying improv in actual workshops, in sessions with teams. Do you do that kind of work as well? I do a bit. Yes. Yes. I've done workshops for corporations. Uh, I've done a lot in education. I definitely do. And I, I enjoy that process of taking everything I know about improv and then applying it to a specific problem. Because I, I, you know, know some of the studies that have come out that show improv helps people deal with uncertainty better or be more comfortable with uncertainty. It helps lower social anxiety. And it definitely helps with ideation, uh, with divergent thinking. So, so yeah, I definitely do. To me, there's this, you know, there's improv as you've described it and what it you know, the experience you had with it, there's these outputs, these these concepts for what it, the benefits that can come from it, but there's still this missing gap in between. Tell me about a time you have worked with a team and 
what you did with improv. Set the scene for me. Yeah, well, I think if I can go back a little bit, I think what might bridge the gap a little bit is is my own experience. I think after I, I you know, my academic book was published and I was this so-called sort of improv expert and I, I learned about focus and how it helps people be in the moment, I was really struggling in my real life. Like I wasn't experiencing any sort of presence or you know, in the moment, playfulness, joy. I was such an overthinker. I, you know, was so angry and I just was really struggling. And so I think this new book, Player Way Sane, is really, it really comes out of that. It's that I'm not so interested in, I want everyone in the world to take an improv class. It was, okay, I know this to be true about improv. And I know that it comes from these improv principles I have to now adapt this to my everyday life and create ways that I can find playfulness and joy and connection, not only on stage, but I have to be able to find this uh, in my everyday life. You wanted to do precisely what I'm asking you now to explain, (laughs) which is how do you go from experiencing this in one moment, in one very specific setting, and actually you know, filter that uh, into uh, life so that you can have more of that sensation of being present, of being more creative, living in play in in the experience of your life rather than it being an adjacency. Yeah. And, and I do the same thing when I work with a team, right? I And I did the same thing when I was teaching middle and high school students in New York City, right? I look at, you know, what what's the obstacle? Like, what am I struggling with? And when I applied improv principles to my classroom, I really boiled it all down to, I need to really be able to measure and then adjust students listening, their openness, and their ability to collaborate with each other. So I really boiled it down to those three different things. And Mm -hmm. then I would measure in each class, I would, I would really think about what are examples of when this particular cohort is listening or not listening? Or, you know, are they open to each other's ideas or do they shut each other's ideas down? And then what does the collaboration look like, right? Can they build off each other's ideas or not? And then I would intervene appropriately, right? So for one class, I might really focus on listening. That might be an improv game. It might not. There's a ton of different ways you can work on listening, right? So mm-hmm. I, I always think more in terms of what are the principles, right? What are what are the different things that I'm measuring? And then I I borrow from everywhere to then try to improve those. Mm-hmm. So you're you're being purpose driven about it. You've got a capability you're trying to develop. Let's state listening, for example. You're trying to create a culture of listening. Uh, in the classroom between a group of people. Now, when you say measure it, was it just observation or were you using actually measurement tools for their listening quotient, let's say? This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. (coughs) Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. Yeah, I would definitely do qualitative. I would, uh, when I was using it in the classroom, I would draw two lines on a piece of paper. The first section was listening. Second section, section was openness. And the last one was collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I would just take those sort of qualitative notes of, you know, this happened and then this and then this. And then after class, I could step back, read over it, process it, look for patterns, and then figure out, you know, and teachers do this all the time, right? Teachers have to decide what's the biggest thing I need to work on tomorrow and how am I going to do that? Why did you choose those three areas? What led you to narrowing on those skills amidst any of the characteristics one could emphasize in a classroom setting? Well, at the time, we were really focused on common core standards. And so I knew what was expected you know, of my classroom and my students from the state and from my principal and from my assistant principal, you know, I really thought about what does that classroom look like that everyone seems to agree looks like a classroom that's really effective. Mm -hmm. And then I can take what I know about improv and what makes that sort of improvised collaboration really effective and sort of marry the two. And so for me, it's really that I was thinking about what that ideal classroom environment looked like. And for me, that's uh, me stepping back and my students being able to work in groups by themselves. So what does that require? They have to be able to listen to each other, right? Like you, you cannot, you can't do any of the things in sort of a functional classroom if people aren't listening, right? So that for me was a no brainer. When you say, you know, obviously, you can't have a functional team that isn't listening to each other. Just be Captain Obvious for a moment. Help paint a picture for me as to why that is the case. Why can't it work if people aren't listening? This again comes from my improv background and my improv research, right? Like I know how important listening is. You just can't take it out of the equation. And it's because I, I think one of the main reasons I think about is this concept of creative suppression or creative mortification. 
So creative suppression is that experience where maybe somebody on a team has an idea. And then if nobody sort of picks up on it or somebody shoots it down right away or, or nobody really, you know, acknowledges that that was an idea, right? So no listening was really shown. And so that can be really tough for certain individuals and they might shut down. So for the rest of the meeting, they might be like, you know what? I'm not going to say anything else, right? Like I tried, it didn't go well and I'm done. And so I really noticed that and was concerned about that as a teacher because my role then becomes really important. How do I show my students that I'm truly hearing everything that they say and how can I model that and then how can I teach it? And and for me, the best example is the improv exercise called Yes And. And I would drill this with my students and see a huge difference. And, And I do the same thing with any team that I work with. And so I say, yes, I repeat what you said, and then I can add on to it, right, in some way. So I might say, you know, that sounds really interesting. I might ask a question, um, like what role does listening play in, in this idea of understanding, right? And so just this act of, for me, the, the listening part is that me stopping and me repeating what you said repeating what someone says is a really powerful way to show I am listening to you, right? I heard what you said and I might have some questions about it or, you know, I might want to know more. Yeah. You're saying that even, even where uh, they're not even having to go deeper and, 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 and try to understand what's beyond the words, even where you could get students to repeat what they'd heard so that they were listening, even at, at sort of, let's say, level one listening uh, and then build on it from there and this idea, it it helped them to just even know they needed to tune in, that, that their job was, in fact, to be in an active listening mode. That's what I hear you saying. Yes, because I, I feel like as a society, sometimes it's not really valued um, or, or appreciated that we're just trying to really understand, like, let me get this straight. Like, do do I have what you're saying right? Because when my students would start to do that, it would really reduce the amount of conflict and misunderstandings in the classroom, right? If if I have to repeat what you said, it's going to be really clear if I have something wrong. If I do not repeat what you said, and I just say whatever I'm going to say, that a lot of times can be more of a conflict, right? Because I missed something and no one knows what I missed. And so for me, it's just about making those things really clear, especially in the beginning when it's being taught. I hate to be so blunt about this, but I basically think that the vast majority of people are rubbish listeners. (laughs) For sure. And and I, I don't mean it's that people don't listen at all. It's that I imagine and believe a great deal about the principle, that there's a lot of richness to it. There's an enormous range of capability that's possible so that you could be, you know, you could be an above average listener and still be bad because there's so much greatness that's possible that you can become a good listener, a great listener, exceptional listener, then a powerful listener so that you can really start to understand people fast because you're fully here. I find that deep listening 
is um, is the closest I come in my life to being in a meditative state. That when I'm in deep listening mode, it's a very peaceful experience because all of the noise that's otherwise in my head, all of the to-dos, all of the work is completely put aside. That agenda is shelved and I can live entirely in somebody else's experiences and in their frame of reference. So I find it I find it genuinely enjoyable. I find it quite cathartic, but I also have learned over these years of working on this, really over the last 20 years of trying to study deep listening and deep empathy and understanding techniques and principles that there's a there's a vast range that's possible and the highest value is when you're going not you know from good to great in this space is much more valuable than even going from bad to good and so that's where the 10x influence exists and and then of course if you can get a whole in the in your case classroom doing it or a whole family doing it or a whole business team doing it where you have a culture of deep listening it's not just a nice interpersonal oh that makes me feel good type thing nothing wrong with that benefit in and of itself but it's also the key to unlocking the all of the collaboration and innovation and the action the work that needs to be done it changes everything um you know my experience taking everything i knew about improv and applying it to my everyday life uh, and I continue to do that to this day. I mean, it's truly allowed me to be able to still be in a happy and healthy marriage. You know, I've been with my husband for eight years. We now have two kids. And, you know, at the beginning, you know, I was not a great boyfriend. I was not a great husband in many ways, right? Because I can be really defensive, I hear things that he's not really saying, right? And and I think a lot of people do this to a certain extent. Sure. And so for me, this deep listening and trying to understand what what is his reality, what's he really saying has changed everything for me. And it's really lifted a weight off of me so that I don't need to be defensive, right? Or at least not right away, right? I need to figure out what are you really saying? And I need to ask clarifying questions and I need to repeat back what he said and, and really process it and, and ask questions. And it, it truly has changed everything. Recently, I put out a question on social media. I said, think of a time when you have felt misunderstood. Hmm. Uh, in one word, what did that feel like? And I was really surprised at the intensity of the answers. I'm gonna read some of them here. Okay, annoying, fight poison with poison, confusing, embarrassing, gut-wrenching, unjust, isolating, frustrating, debilitating, excluded, trapped, gutted, fearful, disheartening, suffocating, betrayed, outcast, unworthy, impatience, undervalued, draining, Hurt, humbled, defeating, effortful, depressed, terrifying. Like those are some of the answers. Yeah. yeah. Just read straight off. Those are stronger. It's hard to come up with stronger words than that in terms of a negative experience. And yet, my sense is that maybe we don't all spend a lot of our life 
in that state with other people, but that because people just think they're better at listening and understanding than they are, a lot of us are in practice spending a great deal of our life not feeling very understood. And so, of course, therefore feeling somewhat misunderstood. Uh, and I think it's the cause of a lot of a lot of the other damage and costs that pull relationships down, and therefore, of course, uh, anything we're trying to do with other people, whether it's build a school, great classroom culture, or a great entrepreneurial venture, or a family, uh, all of this seems to be quickly undermined if people feel misunderstood. I always say that you know people want to be truly seen truly heard. And if those things are happening, they feel valued. So to me, that's why 20 years later, after stumbling into that improv audition, you know, I'm still in it. Like I am still taking these principles and applying them to life because I think that's what it all boils down to. And I see it in my marriage and I see it in my conversations with people. You know, 20 years ago, I was not a good friend, right? I, I just didn't have the tools or, you know, I don't know what it was, but through improv, I have been able to s- truly see people and hear them, not all the time, but when I get it right and make them feel valued. And in exchange, I am much more likely to have them reciprocate, right? And it will improve our whole dynamic. And that's what Play Your Way Sane is all about is like, you can do all these games, all by yourself. Right? Mm. You don't have to tell anyone. You don't have to take an improv class. And that's what I've done. I just sort of play these games in my head and it's made such a powerful impact on my life. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Give me a game that I can play in my head that would help me to listen better, listen deeply uh, in the way that we've been describing. There is an exercise called, since we're talking about teaching, it's called Teach Me Sensei. And you are really imagining that whoever it is you're talking to is very wise, right? They know these amazing things and they are a teacher. And so you are really listening for a nugget of, from what they're saying that is powerful, that mm. is, is interesting. Right. Mm. Um, and for me, this is really important because sometimes I talk to people and I'm like, I'm making assumptions, right? Oh boy, I'm not going to learn anything. <laughs> Small talk. I'm not into it. Right. And mm-hmm. if I'm thinking that that's exactly what I'm going to get out of the conversation. But when I just flip and really, you know, again, talk about focus, when I really focus on what's amazing about what they're saying, I can always find something, right? Mm. If I'm being playful, if I'm being curious, if I have that improv spirit. I love that example. That's something we can immediately do. And the next person we talk to in the next interaction uh, is is not writing them off. Yeah. Oh, you know. 
well, it's one of my kids. You know, I, I'm just going to kind of be very selective listening or pretend listening. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. No, you're saying, teach me sensei, that you listen as if, oh, my goodness, I have a sensei here, somebody incredibly wise in front of me, you know, and listen as if there's method in any madness that might be on, uh, on show. Uh, open, opening myself, increasing the chance that there'll be an exchange of value and certainly that I'll have uh, a, an increase of understanding with them. Give me another game to play. I love that first one. And there's another exercise sort of similar that's called hard-hitting reporter where you just pretend that you're this reporter, right? And you're really trying to get to like, what's the essence of this person's story? And that sort of mm -hmm. helps prevent you from doing what's one of my bad habits, which is turning every conversation back to me, right? If I'm a hard-hitting reporter and somebody says something about their job, I need to figure out what's going on with their job. I do not need to be talking about my job because that's not what the conversation is about. Yeah, the, the the rule of journalism, especially in uh, you know in a, in a bygone era, is you know never become the story. Right. And you're saying if you take on the role of a hard hitting journalist, then it's always about them. Take it back to them, which to me con is consistent with uh, the research on social anxiety, which suggests that we feel greater social anxiety as we turn inward. Yeah as we're focused on ourselves, how do I look? And oh yes, then as you say, okay, our hands, sweaty hands. Well, now you're worried about that. What will people think of this? And it creates its own downward spiral. And so if anyone who starts to feel social anxiety simply tries not to say, oh, don't be nervous because you can't not do something. You'll just focus on the thing you're trying not to do and make more of that aggravate yeah. the problem. <laughs> you focus on them you will relax, uh, you know, because you're no longer worried and self-worried. So another great yeah. example, it feels to me as we talk about this, first that you had yourself a game-changing experience. You experienced the world in a completely new and different way the first time that you did improv. And it seems similarly that, that as we go away from this conversation and utilize these games that we can start touching the same kind of experience that literally changed the direction of your life. Absolutely. We can, you know, you know, by taking the principles and applying them to our everyday life, you know, why can't we be more positive? Why can't we be more collaborative, more open, less defensive, better listeners? Um, and that's definitely the experience that I've had. And so far, many of the readers of Play Your Way Sane have had, which is for me, you know, I'm sure as you know, you know, the most gratifying thing. It's a real pleasure to be with you here, Clay Drinko. Maybe I can just ask one final question, which is, what is the question you hoped I wouldn't ask? <laughs> that's very interesting. I, um, I, Never thought that. So I, <laughs> I think because I really try to walk the walk of sort of living these improv principles, right before we started talking, I was very nervous, right? 
But instead of spiraling, which I'm very good at, by the way, um, <laughs> I, I did some of the breathing exercises that are in my book, calm myself down, and never let myself imagine any of the questions that you were going to ask, mm-hmm. knowing that you, you know, have great books. You have two great books. You have an amazing podcast. I've listened to it. And all I needed to do was to listen to you and respond accordingly and enjoy it. And I told myself three times before uh, we started talking, just enjoy it, have fun, have fun, have fun, enjoy it. And I absolutely have. So I, I never let myself think that. That's a, that's a lovely answer and, and lovely self-disclosure there as well. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, on the What's Essential podcast, Clay Drinko, author of Play Your Way Sane. Uh, we covered a very particular thread of that book. Of course, you can't teach a book, so it's a perfectly reasonable thing that we've done. I uh, went uh, deep on uh, some innovative, interesting, unusual ways of thinking about how to listen better. Uh, and and I'm going to immediately apply these improv games, and I'm already confident that they will uh, make for uh, great additional skills to put in the listening and understanding toolkit. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much, Greg. This was an absolute blast and an honor. Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. It's been amazing to see what's happened already with this show. The show has become, in fact, the top 3% of podcasts globally within just the first five months of its launch. And that's because of you. You have made this special. And I want to end, as I always do, reminding you that if you don't do anything else, just ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.